Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Anthony Gomes. You're tuned in to the Hood Rocks with Jay Scott. Crank it up. No reason left for living, living all alone. And dying unforgiving with unforgiving bones. The tears and the dread years, they were all throughout your life. Podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. As I always mention, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast platform, which is a great network of music-related podcasts or something for everyone's musical taste. But I always mention my friends on the platform as I begin every show, like Martin Popoff, the rock historian, Vinny Apice, and Carmen Apice on Hanging and Banging, the legendary DJ Mistress Carrie out in Boston, as well as Mac from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, and Tom and Zeus from the number one rated KISS podcast in the galaxy. So check out all those and more on PantheonPodcast.com. Check out Pantheon Podcast on all social media. Just search up Pantheon Pods, as well as The Hook Rocks on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And follow us on all podcast platforms. Don't forget to set your app to automatic download so you get the latest episodes right to your phone and the previous 400 plus episodes that we've done over the past three years. So you can enjoy that and kind of tune out the world and just listen to some great interviews and some great discussions. We've had some great episodes recently, like uh, the White Snake Legacy Show. We also did a live album review of UFOs, Strangers in the Night. We celebrated our three-year anniversary with Stephen Piercy from Rat, as well as some great new music spotlights with Bourbon House, Sam Bam Colton from Dorothy and Faster Pussycat, plus his band Butterside, as well as The Warning and Georgia Thunderbolts. So check out all those and more. 
And we have a, another fantastic episode for you today. It's a musician I've wanted to interview for a while because I find his career really interesting. Um, I grew up in the 80s. He was in a band called White Lion. And then he moved down. He played with Zach Wilde, Black Label Society. He did some other work, too. I think he was on the George Lynch, Michael Sweet album. And he's back in Megadeth. And Megadeth has a new album out. And we're going to get into that. But I'd like to welcome in bassist James Lomenzo. What's up, man? How are you? Jay, hi. It's good to see you. I'm here in Cleveland, and I'm actually looking out my window at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How about that? That's pretty cool. Well, according that's to Terry Lewis, Cleveland, the heart of rock and roll is, is in Cleveland. It, that's what they say. It's still beating. My heart's still beating, so I guess we're in good shape. Awesome. So how's the tour going? Well, first, let me say um, your lead up to the, to the, um, to the show, um, you had me at, at, at Peace Brothers. I yes. love those guys as yes. drummers and human beings, so... Yes, they're they're fantastic guys. Carmine uh, has has been on the show. Um, great, uh, great stuff. They've got a great podcast with the Chicago area promoter Ron Anesti, who owns a couple places here outside of Chicago. Um, but yeah, they're great. And uh, I need to have just, uh, what's that? I did some recording with Carmine uh, for a, for a dear friend of mine, Lisa Gee. Out, uh, she's out in Chicago. So I had I, you know had some great experiences playing with Carmine. And I was just listening to the Blue Murder CD as I was getting ready. That's about a that. great CD. That is yeah. such an underrated album. It what not to me, <laughs> right? No, um, it's it's um it's an album that really. I mean, you think that it's three people in that band, and the music that it, that that is made from those three musicians. The biggest sound per per measure, and uh, let's not forget Tony Franklin, by the way. Yes, uh, he's just he's a standout on that thing. One of my favorite bass players. Um, but enough about them. Let's talk about me. <laughs> well, we always begin the same way every time we have a first time guest on the show. And it's really the essence of the podcast. And just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? That is a really deep and interesting question because as a, as a young lad a long time ago, um, I was treated to a lot of music that was just on the AM radio. And that meant, you know, the car radio, the six by nine in my dad's Chrysler, like that was where I got my music from. Then later on, we got those little transistor radios, one and a half inch speaker. So it, it, it wasn't one song. It couldn't have been because I had this music constantly coming at me. My dad was was extraordinarily very cool with with my brothers and myself. I have two brothers, an older one and a younger one. And he used to like as little guys to entertain us. You know, he put on his uh, he just slap on a bunch of records on the on the Victrola. And like we listened to Italian crooners and classical music and then the Beatles. The Beatles just came out. So imagine how mind blowing that was. So um, to me, it was all like this big sound of music. I didn't realize that. There were different genres of music. There was rock and roll and classical and all that. You know, I kind of got that as I, as I went along. So I would probably say that what excited me the most was was just uh, Meet the Beatles, like listening to that record, because it was such a phenomenon at its time. And I was so young that, you know, it wasn't about the screaming girls. It was about the spectacle of it being everywhere, you know. So I would, yeah, somewhere, anything, name any song on Meet the Beatles and you got me. I, I find that interesting because my... Um, introduction to music was very similar. My grandfather used to be a piano player back in the days of the speakeasies in Chicago. So no he used way. to play for all the, all the mobsters and, and everything in these, in these, uh, taverns and, 
whatnot. And, and I remember when I would stay overnight there, he would always wake up every Saturday or Sunday morning playing his piano. And he was a he was a booming piano player, like it sounded like thunder. So I'd wake up and that was my first introduction to music. And then, of course, I had an older brother who would bring all these rock albums in. So I kind of got that both ends of the spectrum from a very early age. I love that. It's a great story. Um, my my grandfather was I and I didn't meet him. He died when I was very young. But apparently he was um, an Italian vaudeville musician. So he had uh, played mandolin and acoustic guitar and violin and all that. And it was kind of like if you've ever seen the, the Godfather Part Two, I think it was, where they um, actually go into one of those, you know, vaudeville local theaters in, in New York and see like them playing this dramatic, you know, campy thing that they used to do. Uh, he was part of that. And so we had his instruments around. So, you know, in, in, you know, together with the music that my dad was playing, he'd every once in a while treat us and pull out the guitar, this, this old harmony acoustic guitar that was way too big for any of us to play. And God knows you couldn't hold the strings down, the violin, the uh, little mandolin, all that stuff. I still have his mandolin, by the way. So yeah, there's, a, there is something to that kind of depth of, of just experience when you're so impressionable and just like the world is coming at you from all directions that, that is really, for people who love music, I think it's it's so referential. It really kind of lived, it stays and lives with you for the rest of your life. Knowing that part of your family history, did that help support your interest in music? Absolutely. But I'll tell you something very strange. It occurred to me, I'll, I'll try and make this succinct because I think I've been saying it too much, but it occurred to me lately. So um, when I was, again, you know, everything is like you're being influenced as a, as a little kid. And um you know, back then, like the 60s, you know, you'd be propped in front of the cathode tube TV and you'd watch, um, you know, uh, game shows mostly on during the daytime. You know, my mom was doing laundry or whatever, you know, and I wasn't in school quite yet. And so I would see the um, I would see the uh, game show hosts. Right. And there's something about them that really sparkled to me. And maybe it was the LeMay jackets they were wearing back then those ridiculously long microphones in their faces but their confidence there was something about that that really drew me into watching and they seemed to have a way to deal with every situation if they had some kind of you know crazy guest or something like that they'd be able to navigate it right so this i'm talking about i'm looking back at this at that time this was all intuition as a little guy but i was impressed by that and so I think what, where all this really converged, like wanting to be a musician who performs for people, I misinterpreted that or I, I correctly interpreted that as uh, a way of self-expression. I like that uh, somebody could stand in front of an audience, be it TV or live or in a room and and show this confident part of themselves. And I, I identified that later on as um, to me, like the music and Music and trying to, um, you know, exude my soul to people, which is what all artists try to do. They try to like open up their chest and show you their insides, right? I think when that finally converged, I realized that that just kind of gave me a vehicle to, to be a musician because I was so influenced by the music. And that was what I really ended up, um, just grasping onto. I remember my dad got, um, my brother a, uh, what the, the hell, uh, an accordion. Because there was an accordion store next to his dad's uh, shoe store. And so, you know, you'd, you'd rent an accordion and they'd give you lessons there. That was back in the day, you know, and nobody wanted to play accordion. I thought it was cool. But um, then, you know, my younger brother tried to, you know, give him something. And as soon as he gave me, I think it was a drum. Yeah, a snare drum. He goes, uh, what do you want to play? I said, oh, I want to play the drums because I thought Ringo Starr was kind of cool, you know. 
And so he got me a snare drum and I just sat there and I practiced rudiments and I got as good as I could. And then Christmas came around and I, my parents wisely um, decided, wisely for them, decided that, you know what, wouldn't you like to play guitar? And I think they were just tired of the racket, <laughs> you know? So um, they did. They got me this beautiful guitar from Sears or something like that. And and I was, I was off. All of a sudden I had that voice, you know? Like I can, and so what I, what I did was as soon as I could put a few chords together and sing the songs that were on the radio that I was listening to anyway, as soon as I could do that, um, then I brought the thing boldly, I bring it to school and then the teachers would go, well, that's very good. Why don't you go and play for the other classes? And like, they give me like a pass to get out of class. Worst thing you could have done for a guy like me, because I was kind of like, oh, this is great. You know, so I don't have to sit here and go through algebra. I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, so little did I know that to be a real musician, I would have to start working with fractions. So. <laughs> Back to math. But um, anyway, so, yeah, that I mean, that was my straight trajectory. I think that's as simple as I can put it. When was the moment that you wanted to perform, wanted to be in a band? Immediately, if not sooner. Um, I I knew I wanted to be in a band all the time because, again, you got to go back to that Beatles reference and Rolling Stones and stuff like that. It, you know, it was it was demonstrative as a little kid. Right. Um but I didn't quite know how to go about it. So I just made myself as good as I could self-contained, you know? And so that brought me to a, um, a public library. I remember just, I was at the library and it's like talent show. And it's like, Oh, I think I have talent, you know? So I pulled the little, you know, little card off there and called them and said, Oh yes, you can be in our talent show, Brooklyn public library, you know? And so I got up there and sang and there was a man that got up there and, and it turned out to be all kids from the neighborhood who were going to school where I was going. And I recognized they were Steve Argeri from my, um, from my, um, from my class. Steve Argeri ended up singing in, um, in journey, you know, for many years. Um, he, he was a force of nature musically too. So we were kindred spirits, but I saw him playing a band and I thought, Oh, this can be done. So I immediately went to him and go, can we, let's start a band. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where it all started. And then we just, you know, we kind of exponentially found other people who was, he plays drums. Okay. You know, they, he plays guitar. Okay. You know, and um, I think uh, somewhere, well, it's a long story how I got into the bass, but anyway, so that's where it started. Was there ever a performance that you saw, you know, from a band, you know, in concert that, was inspiring that, that propelled you or kept propelling you to, you know, further down the path of being a musician? Well, that she's, you know, if I think back, I, I think I was like the who, and it was only, I can only see them on film and TV, you know, but I just 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, I had all this just the pent up testosterone, young man energy, you know, and that their music spoke to me. You could hear it in the music. You know, you didn't really necessarily have to see them. But when I finally saw them on stage doing it, it's funny because everybody with the bass player was like hyperactive, you know, and that that really drew my attention because that's like this is a whole nother level. You know, this isn't just the music. It's it's everything. It's the aggression. It's the power. It's very musical. You know, so um, when I saw them on stage, I thought that's kind of the way you do it. Later on, though, I'll tell you, when I was touring in White Lion, we had toured with a lot of bands, but. ACDC in 1988 was the one that stuck out. I could never stop watching that. I've, I've never been on a tour where I couldn't wait to get out of my dressing room after opening up for a band and get out in the audience and, and watch a band every night because every night it was the same set list, but there was just something magical about each night, you know, and it was just the mostly Angus, you know, but they would just kind of put this thing over the plate 
And you could just see like they were constantly in the moment. And I think that's the thing I love about rock and roll Cleveland. That's the thing I love about rock and roll the best, man. You know, it's it should be somewhat fresh every night. You know, you sh- it should be experiential for the audience and for the musicians. And I think when you actually make that that trade live, no better feeling, nothing better. You mentioned two bands so far in this conversation, the Beatles and ACDC. And the connection with those two bands and how they connect with each other is the simplicity of the music and how it connects with people, I believe, because of that simplicity. And I, I think as the Beatles moved down, they got certainly a lot more experimental, but they never lost the simplicity of the music. And when you listen to ACDC, it's three chords. I, I hear people all the time say both about, you know, about the Beatles and ACDC about, oh, it's, it's simple. It's not that good. And my point is, well, if it's, you know, if it's not that hard, why doesn't everybody write music like that? Sometimes the simplicity is the most difficult thing to write. And they were both masters at it. Well, it's, don't you think it's DNA? I mean, it's just, you know, we're like these organisms, you know? Yeah. So we all have synapse and electrical systems and brain and heart and experiences through our lives, right? That, that draw us into and influences. Uh, you can't discount musical influences. And, you know, I've always said the, the interesting thing you mentioned the Beatles. Okay. So you have the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, right? And, uh, and the Beach Boys. And there was this weird moment, you know, after their second and third albums where they were all kind of, kind of aping each other. They were all copying each other in some way. And I remember the Beatles trying to do like, you know, a, a Beach Boys type of song. And like, it still sounded like the Beatles, you know, weirdly enough. It was like, it was a poor version of the Beach Boys, you know, and then the Beach Boys going into their psychedelia era with pet sounds and stuff like that, trying to do the Beatles. They created something completely different. It didn't sound anything like the Beatles, you know? So, um, I always thought like misinterpretation as a, as a, as a creative form was just as valid as, you know, like hitting the nail on the head. Um, yeah, I don't musically, I, I, you know, again, I, I think that, well, let me put it this way. Okay. So when I was really young, you know, my dad would listen to those Italian crooners. They, they were operatic, you know, the string sections were lush behind all that stuff. And uh, to me, it was like this big sound. It was, it wasn't just. You know, those are the strings. That's the cellos. That's you couldn't identify what was happening. You just heard this, this sound around these singers, but the singers never sounded like a real dude in the room. I think that's where rock and roll really came into its, its foray. All of a sudden you had a guy screaming at you and you could recognize that as a human being, you know, as opposed to like you could go all the way back to the twenties and thirties, like you had Rudy Valley, you know, he had that whole sound coming out of a guy's voice because they're trying to sound interesting, but they only had a limited variety of, 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 of references. So they would find ways probably to project their voices better on a stage. Maybe that's the way they sound that way. I'm just guessing, but we need a music historian to actually follow up with this. Um, but I, th- I think once rock and roll came along, Bob Dylan and, you know, just take it to to its base, you know, you had a human voice, which was actually communicating with you on a level that you could hear and understand viscerally, you know? So anyway, I think that is uh, the um, the reason why ACDC and the Beatles were, were so uh, definitely prominent, even though the Beatles had more of a, a, you know, that English, you know, twinge to them. It still sounded like somebody emoting, you know? The new Megadeth album, The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead, is out recently released. You find yourself back in the band after a few years away. What's it like coming back into Megadeth? Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I just told somebody the other day, I said, um, we were doing the question and answer, and somebody asked me that question. 
And I said, it's like getting on that old rusty bike and surprisingly find out that it rides pretty good still. Um, the rusty part is me, but, um, you know, it's been great. It's the, the last thing I expected. Um, when, when David Ellison came back, I was like in the cheering section for that because I'm, I'm one of these guys who's, I, I was in the band four years. We did two albums. We did, you know, world touring. I don't know anybody who works harder than this band. I mean, you know, it's, it's Dave. Dave drives the whole thing, you know? So, um, we're at, gosh, we're six weeks. God, we've been touring the whole year and last year. So, you know, I'm starting to feel it. I got my coffee so I can stay with you. Um, but this band, um, you know, works really hard. So what I was going to say was after the album cycles and touring, I'd been in all these bands before that. So to me, it was kind of like when Dave Ellison was coming back, I was going, you know what? I'm Maybe it's time for me to move on to something else anyway, right? And so um, I'm one of those guys. I love the original bands. I always do. I get really annoyed when, like, you know, I was a fan of Yes back in the day. And when Bill Bruford went away and Alan White came and I go, oh, it's not going to be the same. And then you kind of amalgamate to it, you know. But um, when Dave came back, I thought that was great. So I I, I thought this would be a forever thing. And, uh, you know, I didn't see I didn't see this coming. And when it did. Um, you know, my phone blew up. Everybody was like, Hey, did you get a phone call from the, from the guys? And, and I'm like, um, no, I, I don't really expect it either. And, and, um, I knew they were working on the album. So, um, I did somebody identified guest correctly that it was Steve DiGiorgio who was playing, who's a stunning bass player. So I, I, it, I laid that to rest. I thought, great. Okay. They got uh, Steve. That's going to be interesting. It's going to be great, you know? And so, um, when they when it finally came time to do the the uh, the uh, metal tour of the year, which is what they started up with last year after doing the album, um, they called me up, and the, you know it was like it was less than a month to get ready. So that was a that was a pretty big task because I had to rearrange a lot of things in in my life to do that. I was playing with another band. I had to make an arrangement. Um, so I did all that, and then learning the music. But then thinking about, okay, so now I'll get on stage. And I was like, how did that used to go? So I put on YouTube, as we, as we so often can. And I looked at um, the Blood on the Water video we did in San Diego. And I was watching this version of Megadeth with, with yours truly. And looking at myself like a almost like a whirling dervish up there. And I'm going, you can't do that anymore, can you? <laughs> you know? So there was that. And... Um, but, you know, uh, graciously, I, I spoke with Dave and I had, you know, because of that, I had a weird trepidation because I get on the big stage and really carry that much space on the stage again. You know, am I ready for that? And so I spoke with Dave and he goes, dude, I, you know, need, we're ready to start the tour. If you could do it, it'd be great. Was, of course, I'd love to, you know. So, you know, we got on great, got out there. Met Dirk was blown away by his drumming, especially for Megadeth. It's 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 a different thing. This iteration of of Megadeth is to me really exciting, and I can't take anything away from all the other ones because they're all great, right? But Dave just finds these musicians. So I got there, and Dirk is playing, and he's like this crazy powerhouse. Like we were talking about, you know, Carmine, a, a piece, right? Mm-hmm. Always got that power, you know. Dirk has that in a metal idiom, which is amazing to me, you know? So him and I, I, I got there and I, Kiko wasn't at the rehearsal yet and Dave wasn't at the rehearsal. And so it was just him and I, we go, well, let's go through a bunch of songs. We went through almost the whole set, him and I, without a guide track, with anything, just the two of us slamming through it. 
And it sounded glorious. It sounded like that. So I was like, this is going to be great. Kiko shows up. He starts running through the music. He's he's one of the deepest guitar players that I've ever met. I mean, he has so many, he has such a variety of style that he can play and execute well, along with, you know, with all, you know, with his his thrashing metal. Um, when he showed up, I was like, this thing is a powerhouse. Like, this is a, so different than all the other Megadeths there were. So um, I thought this, I think this is going to be really exciting on stage. And then Dave comes by, and I've always said this about Dave. It's, it never like, even back when I was playing with the with the Drover brothers and with Chris, rehearsal will rehearse and Dave's not quite there yet. And then he'll show up later on. It never really sounds like Megadeth until he shows up and puts his guitar on because he is that he's that Jimmy Page. He's that that, you know, he's that secret sauce that makes Megadeth sound like Megadeth, you know. So, um, yeah. Anyway, how how have you evolved as a musician since your last stint? with Megadeth like what's different about you that that now you're bringing to the table that you know over the last you know several years you know you've been you've played with other bands of course um we also had some downtime for for a couple of yeah, years yeah we did sure did pandemic so where are you at in terms of you know because we all evolve as people and and I always say musicians as they evolve as people they also are evolving as musicians at the same time so where are you at with, you know, yourself as a musician with this new tour, with coming back into Megadeth? Jay, that, that's a really fantastic question. It really is. That's a very thoughtful question. Um, I think all musicians try to to grow. Um, between Megadeth and now, I, gosh, I did so many things. Um, one of the one of the interesting things that I did was um, I, I divorced myself from everything I did before. I was doing um, for a while, I was doing video production for musical manufacturers. Right. And I liked it. It was like my own little productions. I, I scored the music for it. You know, I go and videotape the uh, equipment. I, I it was in a unique position because I knew how all the stuff worked, you know, but um, I was sitting around. I'm going, but I got to play, you know. So a friend of mine had a, a club in Burbank and he's, you know, he's, I've been doing this blues night and it's not doing very well. You think you could call up some of your big shot friends and come on down and, you know, and uh, drum up a, a, a night? And I said, yeah, we'll do a uh, we'll do a jam night. So at my wife's behest, um, I used my name, which I would normally never do. It's a bass player trait for most of us. Right. But she goes, call it James Lomenzo's whatever, you know, jam night. Right, just do it. So I did it, you know. And um, originally I was going to have Brian Tissue, who I played with many years, but he ended up going uh, back to Farnder for for that moment. And um, I had just done some um, recording of all things uh, for a Bobby Brown record with uh, with um, with uh, Kenny Aronoff. And he impressed me so much. Like I kind of made him my instant mentor. I used to, used to call him up and just see what he was doing. I was such a fan of his. He's a great drummer. And um, so I called him up sheepishly and I said, dude, I got this like Tuesday night jam. And, you know, it's just me. And, you know, I've got a friend Brent Woods is going to play guitar and do you want and i fully expected him to say no no fucking way you know and he goes uh he goes well tuesday night he goes yeah i work on long i do long weekends these days with fogarty sure i'll i'll, I'll do it i said you know there's no money like you know i give you a couple hundred bucks that's it he goes i don't care i just want to play and he did and to my delight he showed up and the thing became a, a whole giant like as soon as i heard kenny was there you know um i had my fan base uh brent had his 
we'd have, we did start getting all our, you know, oh, God rest his soul, Frank Benelli came down. I mean, I could go through a whole litany of 80s, you know, personalities. We had uh, Billy Ray Cyrus stops in, you know, it became this thing. The, the club barely held 50 people legally, you know, so you can imagine what this was. And so, but the point was, I designated myself as lead singer and master of ceremonies. I put myself right in front, just like I did when I was a little kid, you know, somewhere in there, I became a bass player and took a, a background slot, you know, this is the first time in years I did that. So to answer your question more succinctly, that became very successful. And um, after that, I, I went and played with uh, with John Fogarty because um, uh, Kenny, you know, recommended me when when their, their bass player moved on. And I did that for a ton of years. So that's a whole different kind of music. Right. But the point being is this time in Megadeth, I have this whole different outlook on um, on security as a as a person, as a musician, confidence as a as a, um, you know, what it takes to be a leader, what it takes to organize things. And uh, just I played so many different types of music that in a very odd way, I love coming back to metal because it's that aggression again, you know, and it's purely built on the aggression. So, you know, after going through this whole amalgam of like all the musical styles I love to play, I kind of got my yayas out uh, out of all that stuff, because maybe perhaps, you know, back when I would be sitting going, ah, I just want to be a blues basher for a while again, you know. Now, man, I come back to Megadeth and I'm, you know, I couldn't be more hungry. I couldn't be more into like getting up there and watching these giant audiences who are still there, even after the pandemic, coming out, just vehemently looking at us. And, you know, it's like it's church, man. It's metal church. I know there's another band, but it's metal church. They show up. And if we give them sustenance, if we actually do our jobs and we play from the gut, they give it right back to us. And you can see we make that connection. People are happy. They walk away with a spring in their step. We walk away with a spring in our step and we, we have communion. It's the most amazing thing. I always say the best shows are when the band and the crowd have a synergy that is so connected that it's a moment that you know won't last forever, but it's, it's wonderful when you're in that moment. It's a glorious moment. I, I, you know, some nights I get choked up. I really do. It's, it's just a privilege to be able to do this. As we wrap up here, one last question. When you think of your career and you think of the drummers that you've played with, because the bass and drums kind of go hand in hand, do you always stay within who you are when you're playing bass? Or are you or do you try to adapt to what is needed with the song or with the band that you're playing? Jay, come here. This is the secret to my success. Okay. I started out, I wanted to be a drummer. I love drumming. I study drumming. Um, when I became the reason, one of the reasons I picked up bass was because I saw it as the perfect medium between the guitar and the rhythm, you know, because you can still in, you can still inform the uh, melodic content through the bass and you can play the rhythm. Right. So taking that into account, um, one of my happiest things, the greatest accomplishments in my life is to actually go through the list of all my favorite drummers and get to play with them, record with them, go on stage with them. I mean, everybody, you know, I can go down the list. The only person I didn't get is Cozy Powell because he passed away a long time ago, you know, but he'd be in that, in that, in that list of great drummers. I adapt to the drummers. I listen to what they do. They all do something a little different and some of them, you know, kind of move in that direction. But, um, some guys lead with their hi hat. Some guys sit on their snare. Some guys pound on the bass drum. Some guys more fat measure by measure. And so what I try to do is I'll try to really listen to them and try to identify 
what makes their sound because they really, they all great drummers all have their own sound. I could pick out after playing all these years with Kenny Aronoff, I can listen to the radio and go, that's him. He's played on thousands of hits you wouldn't even know about. And I could listen. I'll call him up and go, did you play on Belinda Carlisle's uh, thing? He goes, yeah, that was me. You know, so, so that's it, man. Is the intention for you to continue with Megadeth beyond this tour? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was formally invited last year after the, after the tour, the tour went so well, we got on so great. The shows were terrific. I mean, the camaraderie in this band is off the hook. I don't, I don't even know the last time I've been in a band where everybody was moving in the same direction. Um, yeah, I was uh, formally asked to join the band beginning of this year. And here we are another year gone by and uh, we're looking at many years ahead. So as long as they can keep me in coffee, I can. Stay in the game. That's fantastic. James, this has been a great conversation, man. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it, man. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Take care of each other. We will talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.